The world's next biggest pop star might not be a human. There was a jazz musician in Paris. They got an AI to learn his style of improvisation. It could be an algorithm, an artist born from AI. You saw this kind of nice collaboration between the human and the AI to take us somewhere new. This week, I'm speaking with Marcus du Satoy. He's a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford to find out the extent to which artificial intelligence is upending the creative industries. Welcome back to Playing with Reality with me, Menno van Dorn, a podcast from Society, the home for technology talent. With me today, of course, is my co-host and society expert, Tia Nikolic. Hi, Tia. Hey, Menno. As always, very happy to be here. Yeah, great to hear you <laughs> and to hear your voice. Now, Tia, are you a fan of Drake or The Weeknd? Well, have to admit, not that much of either. <laughs> Maybe a bit more of The Weeknd. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, anyways, I'm very curious to hear why you're asking me this question. Well, you've heard of them, but for listeners who don't know them, they are two of the world's biggest pop artists. Uh, but have you heard about their new track? Let's hear it first. I came with my ex like Selena, So Tia, what do you make of this? You like the song? It's interesting. That's, that's as much mm. as I will say. It uh, sounds a bit like Drake, sounds a bit like mm -hmm. The Weeknd. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Does it sound like it's created by AI? Because it is created by AI. It's not Drake. It's not The Weeknd. It's something you could make as an uh, AI specialist, Tia. I'm used to surprises in these podcasts, so... <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. kind of had a feeling. I mean, this is the talk of the town. Do you do you think this is a watershed moment? Yes, yeah, a groundbreaking moment, definitely. Uh, the way that we create music uh, with algorithms right now, it's much more sophisticated than back in the day. I remember generative adversarial networks and the first first beats that were made with them. They were really like uh, old school type of stuff. Now it's really sophisticated. So yeah, I, I would say it's definitely groundbreaking. There will be pushbacks, of course, from the industry itself. What do you think? Could they be successful and how could they ban those artificial music creatives? I already uh, read about uh, the song, of course, and uh, about Universal Music Group. They actually pushed back on uh, this uh, generated song and they said, if we allow for this to happen... What is going to happen to the livelihood of our artists, like their bread and butter? So they did say that it's also an ethical dilemma. They presented one uh, to the listeners and like, if you have a favorite artist, would you actually allow to listen to a song that was generated as opposed to actually supporting them? But to go back really to a practical question of how do they push back? I don't have an answer to that, actually. Do you have a, some sort of an idea, Mano? What do you think? Well, they will push back, and we've seen yeah. the same by downloading music and films, etc. I would say if the music is as good as original human-made music, if that actually exists, because a lot of music is created with the help of AI, then it will be difficult, I would say. Yeah, Mano, this is definitely a watershed moment. But now, 
Who are you speaking to this week? This week, I invited an old friend onto the podcast, Marcus Dusatoy. Marcus is a professor of mathematics and the Simonyi Professor for the Public Understanding of Science at the University of Oxford. Marcus is also a musician, prolific author, and one of the world's leading thinkers on the intersection between technology and creativity. But I started off by asking Marcus about how he manages to combine his passion for both science and the creative worlds so effectively. That sounds great, Manu. Let's hear it. So I have a bunch of questions for you, Marcus, which is no surprise, I think. But maybe first, could you tell me a little bit more about your background and how you started thinking about this intersection between math and science and creative worlds? Yeah, it really happened uh, when I first went up to secondary school that I sort of was first exposed to the world of science, but also creative arts, doing music, theatre. And I was very frustrated by our education system because it seemed to kind of require us to choose one path or the other, and I kind of liked both. Hmm. And then my math teacher really opened up what mathematics was really about and showed me that mathematics was this amazing language which actually underpins both the sciences and the arts and is in itself a very creative subject. And I think for me that was the kind of eye-opener I saw, all right, I, I can do this subject which actually unifies both the world of creativity but also the language of science. You needed a little push to decide for doing both directions. But uh, let's go back to your earlier work, because in 2019, you published The Creativity Code. It was a year before we published a report called Infinite Machine Creativity, where we both look, you and me, at the possibility that AI could be creative. Now, a lot has happened since then. Now, everybody's talking about the rise of GPTs. Has your opinion about AI being creative changed since then? Uh, Not too much, actually. I think that book, um, I read it at a really sweet spot where a lot of the kind of ideas and ways of using AI in a creative manner had already been sort of tried out. And in particular, you know, GPT-3, ChatGPT, GPT-4, these are all extensions of text generation algorithms, which were already being experimented with when I wrote that book. And in fact, my book has 350 words, a story that I asked a text generation algorithm to write for me. So part of my book is written by artificial intelligence. And it's incredible because, you know, I've challenged people to find the passage. And to this date, only one person has identified correctly the passage that was not written by me. So so I think actually, you know, things have clearly got better. I mean, the kind of level that GPT-4 can uh, sustain with an argument and an interaction certainly is is way superior to what I was seeing when I finished that book in 2019. But actually, the limitations are, are still there, which is it doesn't have very long memory. It's got more memory, but it doesn't actually uh, sustain a kind of narrative argument for terribly long. For example, if you're writing a book, you want to you want some suspense in a novel. You want to save things back. And if you ask ChatGPT or GPT-4 to tell a story with these particular elements, perhaps a 
somebody's a double agent in your story. They blow the information far too early. So they have no sense really still of time and narrative, um, which is something I criticized kind of AI for in that early book. So, you know, I was already seeing very strong examples of AI creativity already in 2019. And I think that that really sums up uh, one of the central messages in my book, uh, The Creativity Code, which is this is about a new tool which we can collaborate with and it can take us humans further in our creativity and our thought process. And this is not about competition and being wiped out as a creative species. And so I wanted to talk very positively about these new tools as collaborative tools, not competitive tools. And, you know, a really important message, these are meant to be tools to help us. And we need to understand these tools to to push us into new, interesting ways of thinking and being creative. It sounds a little bit like when we talked with David Weinberger, he used the words knowledge without understanding. So it shows us something. It doesn't know where it comes from. It can't explain it, but it seems relevant. Yeah, I think this is really relevant to these the use of these new tools, because um, I think already when we were looking at the power of big data, my fear was that the insights of big data, and that's what AI is kind of capitalizing on, might actually be replacing um, deep analytical thinking about why there's a connection. And actually with artificial intelligence, the real danger is that we're creating code that through this machine learning and deep learning process is so complex. It's so many lines of code that we don't really, as you say, we don't really understand how it's making its decisions and it isn't able to articulate why it's made those decisions. One of the reasons I wrote the creativity code was I was on a committee at the Royal Society um, looking forward scoping on the impact that AI was clearly going to have on society. And this is one of our recommendations that we, we felt that it was important almost to create maybe a, a, a meta language or a meta code that could try and compress the decision-making process that the, the AI mm. was making. Now, the trouble yeah. is that quite often that's impossible. Sometimes the complexity and the decision process genuinely has to be that complex and can never be compressed. So, you know, there is a real challenge here that you're always losing information when you make that compression into language and you're missing subtleties. And and so sometimes perhaps these connections that AI is finding are so complex that it's impossible to compress it and explain why. I would say it's almost human. It's like how humans make decisions in complex situations. You can't tell how it works. And, you know, you give some hints maybe, but... uh, Yeah, you see, I think a lot of people talking about whether AI can have consciousness. Um, I think that's way down the line. But in a way, you see, this is a level of kind of subconsciousness. You know, our subconscious is activity in our brain that is going on and and we're not kind of able to articulate it, but it drives our decision-making process. The AI has got got a, a subconscious and we need ways to kind of probe that to sort of understand, well, why has it rejected my mortgage application? Why has it um, profiled me for mm-hmm. being stopped by the police? So these are having important impacts on society. We, we, we need these tools to try and examine this. So listening to Marcus, I think math, science and creativity is becoming ever more important with the rise of AI. So where 
Where is it leading to, Tia? The link between math, science, and creativity. Well, it's leading me to think that actually the split of the brain, if you look back in elementary school, your brain is split into two. One is the analytical, the other is the creative one. Well, it leads me to think that that actually is, um, yeah, we don't think like that anymore and we shouldn't because everything is so interlinked. Mm -hmm. It becomes important that we don't think in like these binary uh, terms regarding uh, art. Yeah, and, and something that made me happy because his point about AI not being able to understand the temporal nature of stories yeah. is interesting in this sense. It it still can't do bigger creative projects quite yet. And me as you know, a semi-creative or amateur creative writing stories, I think there's still a future for me. But I don't know how long it will take before they figure it out and write books like, uh, you know, real fake. Oof. Well, no one can replace you, Mano. I think that's uh, that goes without saying. <laughs> so don't worry. Let's not talk about what makes us sad or worried. <laughs> Let's go on Good. to the next point. I'm very curious to hear what our guest says next. Yeah. And thanks for your nice words. <laughs> this podcast feels like therapy, Tia. Thank you so much. And next, we talked about how Marcus, who is as I mentioned, also a musician, has seen AI being used in music in practice. We should do a little bit of deep dive into the creative process. So how creative people will or already are using it or will be using it in the future and what we can learn from that. Do you think this partnership between humans and AI will be the new normal in, let's say, any creative industry? I think it will. I mean, especially because what these tools are very good at are kind of making new proposals to you about directions to go in. And I think that's where I've seen it most powerfully used in the creative industries. For example, uh, I tell a story in the book about a jazz musician in Paris. They got an AI to learn his style of improvisation. He was a pianist, uh, but his name's Bernard Lubat. And uh, this piece of AI is called the Jazz Continuator. And then it got to a level where it could, it learnt kind of the style of this pianist. And they were able to kind of improvise together in a kind of call and response mode. But what was interesting was the the human player's reaction because uh, he said, well, look, I recognise everything that that AI is playing. It's kind of me. I recognize it's me, but it's it's doing things that I've never ever thought of doing with my improvisational style. And I think that's what's really exciting, that um, you can take your own data set, whether it be a visual, uh, written word or music, to get a piece of AI to, to learn on that, understand what's there and realize new potentials in there that w- we've missed. And so I think that's very powerful as a kind of prompter of new ways of using our own our old data. You're a musician yourself. I believe you play the trumpet. I I can see a guitar in in your room, but have you tried to play with these new tools yourself? Yes, I did a really interesting concert at the Barbican here in London, where we took all of Bach's keyboard works and um, we got a a piece of AI to to learn on Bach's keyboard works. And then we gave it actually one piece that we'd held back and we took sections out of this piece and we asked the AI to fill in the gaps. 
And so we made this hybrid um, piece of Bach and then we played it to the audience uh, and we asked them whether they could distinguish at which moments did they think it was human and which points did they think it was AI. Mm -hmm. And the response was really fascinating because the audience could not tell the difference. Oh my. But the one person who could tell the difference was the pianist or the harpsichord player. We did it on a harpsichord, um, Mahan Esfahani. He said, I know... I know the AI passages for two reasons. He said, first of all, when it hits the AI, I find it impossible to play because the AI doesn't care about fingering, whilst Bach cared about fingering because he had to play this thing. And so that's one of the really interesting ah. distinguishing features is embodiment. AI is not embodied, and that has kind of interesting limitations and opens new potentials. The second reason was perhaps even more interesting because he said... Um, you've chosen one of the English suites by Bach. Do you know why he called them the English suites? I said, no, I'm not sure. He says, because Bach loved the cadences of different languages. So he loved the way English, the, the kind of music in the way English is spoken. He also wrote the French suites, the Italian concerto. And he said, look, you gave the AI just music to learn from, but you didn't give it language. And of course, Bach, as a yeah. creative human, is tapping into language, visuals, religion, culture, history, everything to do that creation. And I think that's something that's very clear at the moment, that the AI creativity tools are generally being given data which corresponds to the to the kind of medium that they're trying to produce. Yeah. And it's not being given, you know, if, if it's visual, it's not being given music as a prompt. Although, you know, that's interesting because we're now getting to things like Dali and Midjourney where exactly. we are getting written word prompts to produce visuals. So so we're starting to see this mix of media in order to create these um, data. But um, so, yeah, I think it's the, the experiments I did there were very interesting. But in a way, the Bach project was interesting, but what we want is using these tools to go into genuinely new. And I've been working, yeah. I set up a centre in the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester called PRISM, which stands for Practice and Research in Science and Music. And there we have been developing a new tool, which is an AI tool, which you can give it sound files and it will then produce a kind of new almost almost like a new instrumental sound out of those sound files, which you can then use um, in your compositional practice. Uh, there, there was a very interesting example that we had where a composer asked a trombonist to basically make all the different possible sounds that they could using the trombone. Um, and then the artificial intelligence took those that data and then made new sounds that the trombone could make. And what was interesting was then the, the human trombonist took that as a challenge and heard these new kind of sound world that the AI was coming up with and tried to see whether it could replicate, that he could replicate what the AI was doing. So you saw this kind of nice collaboration between the human and the AI to take us somewhere new. When you talk about AI being applied in music, you, you are full of energy and you are enthusiastic. But when we talk about AI being used in different creative industries, so let's call uh, paintings, for instance. So are you as enthusiastic about what's going on over there as in in the music scene? Well, yes. Yeah, so in fact, I would say that the visual realm is where these tools have been most successful. And I, that that is, I think, again, comes back to this idea of AI's interaction with time, because a still visual is outside of time. And I think the machine learning tools are very good at actually 
achieving something that had been a huge challenge to AI for decades, which is visual recognition. Machine learning was able to suddenly produce an algorithm that could say exactly what was in a picture. Um, but these tools were also very good at actually creating new pictures. Um, so I think the, the still visual has been incredibly powerful. And we've seen this with Dali and Midjourney. Um, and actually, you know what? Those AI music tools, although they're pretty impressive in the short term, I think in the long term, they're not so impressive and they start to get very boring. And you can, if you listen to the jazz continuator, it, it just seems to be meandering. It doesn't have anything to say, really. So it's kind of locally feels like jazz, but I would rather listen to Bernard Lubat for an hour than the jazz continuator. I would say maybe unless you're in an elevator, it doesn't matter. So maybe the music is created, like music for elevators. Well, I think, you know, that's, I think that's very interesting because there are, you know, what, what realms are going to be really threatened by this new technology? So I don't mm. think the Mozarts and the uh, Miles Davises of this world will be. But what I do think will be the jobs that will go are those kind of second tier composers. Advertising music. Exactly. Or, or corporate videos. So you don't like The weekend, you don't like Drake, maybe you like jazz improvisations here. <laughs> so what do you make of this conversation between AI and, the, and a human being being possible in improvisation? That's quite different. And, and what do you make of the jazz continuator? Yeah, it's actually very interesting. I do like jazz more than Drake and The Weeknd. So. Okay. But then also tying back to this jazz continuator, it's quite an interesting idea to extend the technical ability of musicians with um, learned music material so you can even refresh uh, like refresh your repertoire uh, as a musician so it's quite interesting yeah yeah I, I'm, I'm very fond of the responses of these artists like I've heard Philip Glass music for instance and in an interview he responded on listening to his own mm. well not his own music but his uh, fake music and I think these conversations between an artist and their body doubles because they're they've given all the pieces to the AI could be leading to something interesting, I would say. I think the continuator is the magic word. Well, I have given this a lot of thought, AI not being embodied. So it it creates a piece and then you can't play it because it doesn't, it doesn't care about you being able to play it because you have only 10 fingers, but it's too difficult to play. So I, I, I like this. And it's, it's, you know, he gave that example of uh, this classical piece. What could be the implication of uh, of that? A new, also a new genre, I would say, of music. I think it's a new genre, right? So we also have extremely technical metal and techno music that uh, yeah, people just cannot do. Like it's uh, something that just a machine can produce and people enjoy it. So it also leads them to be more creative and enjoy themselves. So it's not that much of a uh, that much of a bad thing, actually. No, I would be more interested in the opposite. But I would say prompted with uh, create a piece that people can't play, but still sounds like Chopin or whoever, and that would be quite something. Yeah, I like that as well. So I think all the things that we have talked about here and talked with the, the discussion with Marcus all goes back to this one question. How about copyright issues? So now I wanted to hear from Marcus his thoughts on the copyright issues when it comes to music and AI. Kanye West is very popular on Discord. You just uh, can 
take his voice and put it in any song that you would like and uh, have him sing anything in his own style. So if you are Kanye West or a celebrity or a musician or an artist, your style is copied and spread all over the world, which will make you maybe very popular, but it was not your intention and you don't receive any money from it. So how can we deal with this world where everything is being stolen and no copyright is being paid? How do, how, how, what's the solution? No, it's a huge challenge because, I mean, this has certainly come up also with Dali and Midjourney that artists have recognised that their data has been used in the training of these tools and can even start to recognise you know, elements of their work in the, in the products that they're making. So, mm-hmm. you know, how do you deal with this? And, you know, I think this goes back to the whole issue of um, how can you own your own data? Uh, the moment we've sacrificed so much of our data to the big five companies uh, who are obviously you're then now you know driving a lot of the developments in artificial intelligence because they have access to this data so i think you know I, i've heard uh, tim berners lee the inventor of the internet you know really trying to come up with ideas for a kind of internet 2.0 where somehow we can retain uh, much more clearly ownership of our data mm-hmm. and and we can lease it if we want to or we can know how it is used. And I think that is something that we are going to have to address going forward. On the other yeah. hand, we have to recognise that every every new artist gets influenced by the art of the past. So we can't, um, <laughs> it's yeah. very unfair yeah. to limit AI to say, well, you, you can't look at anything we've done before. So I think, you know, there's been some ideas of watermarking, you know, just in the same way as we have data protection laws now, especially in Europe. You know, maybe we need, Europe's already probably the leader in trying to produce legislation to manage how these AI tools are going to be used. And and one of them may be that if you are going to produce something artificial, you need to declare it. And if you don't, and it's discovered later, you will be fined. I mean, those are legitimate proposals, uh, I think. Another dystopian possibility. So what do you have to say to all the mediocre creatives that are listening? Look, um, I think there w- there is a challenge that there will be people being put out of jobs. Uh, you know, already journalism is being written by AI. You'll come to the end of an article and you'll find uh, so short-term journalism. Um, but, you know, th- the point is to to use these tools to to better our own human creativity. And I think that's um, that's the interesting challenge. And I think... You know, there's one interesting element, which it has lowered the bar of entry to be a creative. So you can start Mm. to play around and make visuals with the power of just the use of language in something like Dali and Midjourney. And and people are getting quite um, good at experimenting, changing the language, almost like painting with language. But, you know, I think this is still the case that like the camera, the camera at first sight, it looked like it would put everyone who was making visuals out of business because anyone could pick up a camera and take a snap and make a make a picture. But but they're still limited to the the number of people who can genuinely use that well and create a, a something that's artistically interesting. So I think the same is true with all of these tools. Lots of people making uh, mid-journey pictures, Dali pictures, but there are only a few who are really doing it interestingly and well. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are going to be new jobs and we've already seen them being advertised. Um, the the prompt engineer, the mm-hmm. person who is writing prompts to be able to stimulate these. And that is a skill to be able to, I mean, if, if you've used, you've already been writing with uh, GPT, being able to write in a way that stimulates it into something interesting 
it requires a, a skill. Um, the same with exactly. creating creating visuals. The other interesting job that I think will uh, um, appear on the scene is the data curator. These AIs depend on being given um, data to learn from, and you can take an AI off in different directions by giving it different data. I think already GPT is almost being given too much data. I would be interested in, you know, just creating a GPT that had only been exposed to to gothic novels or something. So you kind of get a gothic GPT. You know, you can ask it to pick up particular styles, but actually by limiting the data set something learns on, you can take an AI in different directions. And this will be important for another dystopia, which is um, the role of bias and racism and bigotry in the way that AI is being taken off in unwelcome directions. I mean, we, we already saw the example of the, um, the the Twitter bots that after 24 hours of interacting with humans had to be taken offline because it was, you know, racist, misogynistic Nazi. So I think that's interesting that the data curator is part of the artistic process in what comes out the other end of an AI. Yeah. So all this talk about copyright issues, Tia, do you think the industry will be able to get over this? Or is it another Napster-style moment, for instance? Yes, the industry always finds a way to get over problems. <laughs> right now, it's a big uh, issue, definitely. And uh, it's uh, yeah, everyone is, it's the talk of the town, <laughs> let's say it like that. It resembles a Napster-style moment. Of course, um, we're making music more accessible, even generation of music more accessible to people in different styles. And uh, that can either hurt the industry when we're talking about copyright and, uh, of course, fairly compensating artists. But maybe for the music for elevators, all these kind of things, advertising music, do you think, so what do you what do you think will happen with the, those people? Will they still have a job? It is a very difficult question to answer. It's, uh, uh, to me, a bit grim, uh, a bit pessimistic, because definitely I think these uh, types of jobs will be affected. Uh, One way to think about it positively is to make it work for you, to learn how to use these models to your advantage, to um, upskill and know what's going on in the market so you can actually uh, preempt this and use it to your advantage. Let's talk about the data curator then. Mm. Nice word. It is. The new norm for the creative industries. What do you think? Oh, yes. So we were just talking about some jobs disappearing. We also see Mm -hmm. some jobs uh, being created by this disruptive technology. One is the data curator, a person that's going to have to be there to make sure that the data is collected, sorted, and used properly to create new data, music, videos. Uh, text, whatever you may have. So I like it. I really like it. I think there's other jobs here, like um, the model whisperer or prompt engineer job that uh, is Mm -hmm. coming up already. And we also like to say in our team, uh, in the data science team here in the Netherlands, the AI validator. Yeah. So there's also going to be people that are there to make sure that these uh, models are ethically trained and used and that the data is not copyright uh, infringed, etc. So that's interesting, I think, as well. But I also want to ask you another interesting thing. What are you closing up with? Ooh, yes. Well, finally, 
as we love to do on Playing With Reality, as you know, I asked Marcus for his dystopian and utopian predictions for the future of AI in the creative worlds. We might close with your most optimistic view on what AI will bring to the creative industry, and then we'll finish off with the darkest possible future that we ever can imagine. I will give give mine version and then (laughs) you will give yours. So what's the most optimistic? For me, this new tool is a bit like the moment Galileo got a telescope and was able to look deep into the solar system and see things we'd never seen before. So for me, the really exciting uses of AI are a kind of telescope into the digital world, this huge amount of data that we as humans just cannot navigate. So, and I've already seen, I think that was why I was so excited to see AI looking at mathematical data, finding new conjectures in there, which which then was stimulus for us to go off in a new direction. So, so my my optimism is is using this as a tool to to discover new things in this hugely complex world that we've created in the digital world. So w- whether that be you know mathematics, music, visuals, or or the written word, I think in the written word we're already seeing something in the digital humanities where. You know, it's able to read books on a scale we can't, and it might be able to pick up genres that we've just seen disappear in the Victorian age. There are books that people never read any for a hundred years. Maybe there are undiscovered gems in there that are really relevant to today. So, yeah. so I think you know, my optimism is about we've created this extraordinary tool, which is like the telescope for the digital world. My optimism is small. A small example. It's about human adaptivity. So for me, I took pride on the prompt that I used when asking GPT-4. So I was already fine with not writing the stuff, but taking, so the feeling of being proud of what, of the question that you have asked is, well, I I had to laugh about it because uh, I I noticed it and I think, okay, this is a new world. It's okay. That's my optimism. And now your pessimism. Yeah, the dark side. I think it's about unexpected consequences. Yeah. I think realistically, my really deep worry is about um, the use of AI in in warfare and weaponry. And that's already, you know, hugely developed and already being implemented. And I think, you know, that that is scary. And I wonder whether we need to have, just in the same way we have a chemical weapons ban, um, do we need to have some sort of legal system I mean, we do have, you know, rules yeah, in in war, which are kind of respected. Maybe we need to introduce the idea that always a human must be involved in the use of these tools, such that a, a, a sort of kill isn't made based solely on the decision-making process of lines of code. Yeah. Well, your darkest night, your scariest dream is the same as mine, wipe out humanity. And there's a name for it. It's called Chaos GPT. <laughs> So people are uh, have created this uh, model by saying, you know, wipe out humanity. And then it came back with questions and answers and said, okay, then they need to find something weaponry and where can I find the biggest weaponry? It's somewhere in Russia and there's nuclear power and it goes on and on and on. And this nightmare could evolve in a confederation of models that work together and actually write code to get into systems that you want, don't want to get in. And then, you know, we are gone. I know it's science fiction, 
But by, by this example of Chaos GPT, it comes a little bit closer than only talking about it. Absolutely. This is why we need to proceed responsibly as we go forward with these new technologies. And we've always known that in the past, that um, all, all scientific development has positive and negatives. And, and that's the role of society to, to be involved in the debate, which is you know, partly why I write my books, to try and empower the public to understand what is happening to it. Marcus, thank you very much for our conversation. I'm looking forward to your next book. I will ask GPT for what your next book will be, and I, I will inform you about it. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not sure I want to know, but yeah, it's been uh, very, very nice to have a conversation with you. Uh, Thanks a lot. Uh, man. Okay, thank you. That's all for today. Thanks so much to you for listening, and a big thank you to Marcus and Tia as well. If you enjoyed this episode and want to let us know, please get in touch on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find us at Sojati. And don't forget to subscribe and review Playing With Reality on your favorite podcast app, as it really helps others find our show. In two weeks, we'll be back with our final episode of this season, as we look backwards and forwards in time, assessing what we've discussed over this season and what the future holds for artificial intelligence. Do join us again next time on Playing With Reality. Music.